Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. All right. Good morning. Good morning, Community Christian Church. Everybody doing all right this morning? So good to have you here in the house this morning, whether online or in person. It is just an honor to be with you. Before I dive in this morning, I just want to make a quick comment. Um, There is something so special about a church family, and I think sometimes we let it go unthought about, that it just becomes routine, that we forget that a church is not just supposed to be a checkbox list thing in your week, but it's supposed to be an extension of your family. It's your heavenly family. It's your kingdom family. And you don't realize how much you need that until you do. And when you have it, it is the most invaluable thing that God could give you, and it's a church family. Uh, And so I just want to encourage you today, the best gift, if you're a parent, the best gift you could give your parent is a church family that you're rooted into. A grandparent, if you're a sibling, if you are a young family establishing your family's culture, the best thing you could do is root yourself in a church family that will surround you, help you parent, help you love your family, help you when it's hard, help you when it's easy. You need a church family. So before I go into any of this, I just kind of felt that for me personally, and I just wanted to share that with you, that if you have not made a church your home church yet, really I strongly consider, I would, I would encourage you to strongly consider doing that, that it is invaluable in your life. And especially on a topic like today as we talk about slaying giants, I can tell you that giants are not fun to face, especially alone. And maybe you have found yourself here this morning and you have found yourself in a situation where you are staring down a giant of some sort in your life. And maybe you feel like you look around and there's not much help. Can I tell you this morning as we dive into the Word of God that it's not just for you to fight one-on-one, but for a church family to surround you in battle with you. As you fight towards victory, it is not you versus the giant. It is you, your heavenly Father, and your kingdom family. They're with you facing these giants. I'm a big nerd in one specific area. Uh, Lord of the Rings. Is there anybody else that is a Lord of the Rings fan in the room? Thank you. Thank you, my fellow. I won't call you a nerd. I'm just, I'll call myself the nerd. I love Lord of the Rings specifically because uh, the author, Tolkien, uh, in, he weaves in kingdom principles throughout his fantasy text. And uh, what I specifically love is the way he in, uh, portrays kings. And kings are not like human kings as we understand them. He portrays them often like the way King Jesus should be presented, specifically when they are go- about to go into battle. Maybe you have spent time, like the four hour long movie that it is, and you've watched one or two of these, and you've seen one of these battle scenes where they have this army that is opposing them, this dark orc army, and it just is, uh, they're brooding and they're nasty looking, they're just completely vicious and scary. And you have the, uh, the army of men that's ready to fight them, but the king doesn't stand back and watch. My favorite component that Tolkien writes into this is that the king goes out to the front, he draws his sword, and he, he gallops his horse in front of the army, rallying the troops to victory. 
And so what I love about that is that it invokes the spirit of fight that we need to have as believers. That we are led by King Jesus into the battle that we know is already won, but we fight it as long as we live on this earth. Until the new heaven and new earth is restored, we fight, but we don't fight as one. We fight as uh, an army behind Jesus. And so this morning, I hope to present this topic on slaying the giant, specifically the giant of lust, the fun topic of the series. I hope to tackle this not just as practical steps on how you can kind of swat the fly of lust out of your life, but instead rally, draw your sword, mount your horse, and ride into battle behind King Jesus into battle to victory. I believe today victory will be had in lives this morning over lust. Amen? Amen. Why don't we pray? Let's just continue to invite the Lord into this process with us. Heavenly Father, we just love you. God, this morning we are not idly sitting by. We are actively mounting our horse, so to speak. We are ready to go into war with you to oppose this enemy. Holy Spirit, would you lead us into a revelation from your word that we would root out this giant, that it would not simply be uh, just uh, delaying an inevitability, but simply rooting it out. So God, we love you. We put the service in your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today, as any king of battle would, as you, before you go in, you have to know who your enemy is. And you know, I know in this series we present these opposing forces against us as giants, but often I would say as much as they can feel giant, they're not always easy to spot like a giant might be. Often these things kind of find their way. They're hidden behind the trees, so to speak. They're not just in a front walking at you. They tend to kind of hide and then show up when you least expect it. And so today, what I want us to do is we're going to identify our enemy, not just in terms of, uh, not just the simple kind of root thought that you get when I, hear, when I say the word lust, but I want to go deeper into what truly is lust and what is this enemy? What is the tactic the enemy is trying to use to defeat us through lust? So we're going to identify the enemy. Then we're going to apply some practical steps on how you can combat the enemy in your day to day. How you can set up your family for success. How you can set up your, uh, the people around you for success, including yourself. And then finally, I want us to be commissioned into the fight. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you today that you would not just uh, listen to a message, but your heart would be stirred that by the end of this, when we worship, that you would be ready to go into battle for your family and for the next generation. So let's dive in. Who is our enemy? It is lust, and why does it exist? This is a definition that through study I feel like I've kind of landed on and I'm going to open it up for us. Lust is the irrational actions of a person stemming from misappropriated desire for something in hopes to fill an unfillable void. The only remedy is a transformed heart and mind by Christ to reestablish God's initial intentions for desire. 
So let's break this down. We have to look at God's word to see what that means. When I say irrational action, this irrational uh, desire for something, because I believe lust, though we understand it uh, at first glance in a sexual term, it actually has so many more meanings to it. And I want us to get to the core of it rather than just wipe away or uh, weed the top of it, so to speak. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. In this particular passage, Jesus is uh, teaching, and he's talking about the heart of man. Specifically, the heart before they have repented, before they have allowed the transformational work of Jesus in. And it gives us insight into how our heart would go if Jesus never walked onto the scene. So Matthew 15, uh, verse 19, it says, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. I like to think of it like this. It's like gravity. You can't fight it unless you have something to assist you to fight against it. And so our hearts, left unattended by Jesus, have a natural wandering towards these sinful desires. And so you may not identify with all of them. Maybe one stands out more than the other, whatever it may be. But left to our own devices, our hearts tend to go this way. It's our sinful nature, if not left, if not uh, rooted out by the work of Jesus in our life. So Jesus says, listen, I'm not just going to leave you here, but just know that that's where you are prone to going unless I enter in. So with that knowledge, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to let me in and transform your heart, or are you going to allow the gravitational pull of these sinful desires pull you away? Because that's really their intention. It's not to just uh, uh, wash over you, but it's meant to draw you away from your initial intent, that is to be in relationship with God. Let's go a little bit further. 1 John 2, 16 and 17. This, I feel like, really encapsulates what we're going to go into today and identifying our enemy, identifying this giant. Verse 16, it says, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So we see these three uh, promptings of the heart that do not come from God. And we have to, whenever you see that phrase, not from the Father, we have to be conscientious of it because at the dawn of man, at the creation of man, our hearts in its purest form were only meant to point towards God. In the Garden of Eden, before there was any corruption in the world, it says that God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. As you and I could go for a walk on a beautiful fall day like today, in the same way, God's original intention was to walk with us like that. But here's the difficult thing. Man was given free will. Out of truly an act of love from God, for us to truly love him back, he had to let us have a choice if we would obey or not. And Adam and Eve, they did good for a minute until they didn't. And then we get to this, uh, the original sin. And this is how I kind of see it looking if we were to uh, look at it through the lens of 1 John. It's that Eve was walking in this beautiful garden and she got kind of in proximity of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The only thing God said to not touch. 
If you ever parented or have been around a toddler, you know that if you say, don't touch this, what's their first inclination? Run right at it. Don't touch the big red button. What do they do? Push the red button. Eve in her heart maybe just took a stroll and got a little too close to the temptation. In that proximity, she sees in her eye this fruit, and the Bible says it looked good to eat. So through that lens of her eyes, the thought life begins to stir. We know how this works. It doesn't take long for something to come in your ears, in your eyes, to start to stir the workings of your heart. You have the choice of what comes in. Is it going to be positive or negative? Eve allowed the temptation of this thing to come in and manifest negative response. But then there was this final thought, the pride of life. The, the serpent sneaks in, he says, did God really say? And he starts to break the communication line with the father. That's the enemy's first tactic. You're linked up with God and you're hearing, you're in prayer. The first tactic of the enemy is to break that communication line. Did he really say? Is he really good? Is he really faithful? If he can get you questioning, that's the, that's the first chink in the armor. So the serpent presents this thought and she goes, you know, I kind of would like to know all of the wisdom of the world. I would like to be like God. So out of this prideful act, she takes the fruit and consumes it and then hands it to her husband, uh, Adam, and he partakes of it as well. And so we see this action and it, at, from our perspective, we're like, what are you doing? You had it so easy. You just had one thing you couldn't do. But this lust of the flesh took over. It's something that has to be subdued. It is in us, but it has to be uh, bent into submission uh, by the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. Let's look at this a little bit further. Humanity gave into irrational desire. It makes no logical sense. Uh, if you're married in the room, I can imagine one of you in the marriage is probably the really logical, less emotional decision maker, and the other is probably a little more emotional, a little more of a uh, spontaneous. Does anybody else have a marriage like that? All right. So for me, I am a bit more of the emotional. I tend to burn white hot or go ice cold on things. And I am balanced by Darlene's logical process. She might not make the decision as fast, but she will think through every option. And that's a good balance to have in life. And what happens uh, in our flesh, this irrational desire, it's a, it's a visceral reaction that doesn't make sense from the outside perspective. It is, in, the, in its word, it's irrational. And in that act, there is pride that shows up. And it's contrary to God's intentions for us. When Adam and Eve realized what had happened, their world began to crumble. God's original plan was life without separation from him and a life without death. God's redemptive plan is ultimately to bring us back to that. So God did not give up on it. He just says, I have to reestablish it. And we are in that process now. And that day is to come where we will walk with God in the cool of the day again. But in the meantime, we wage war against the vices of the enemy, specifically this one in lust. So I want us to look at lust not just in sexual terms, but in terms of irrational desire of the human heart. Something that doesn't make sense to fill a void we think we need, but we know ultimately it always falls short compared to what God can do in our life.
We see it a few other times in scripture. Abraham and Sarah, just uh, later in the, in, the New Te- or in the Old Testament, Abraham and Sarah, they want a child, but they can't have it. So uh, Sarah says in her own thinking, in her own pride, in her own intention of uh, wanting to have a child, they bring uh, their uh, slave girl to him. And Abraham uh, sleeps with her and they have Ishmael. Ishmael is not the promise from God. It was taken into their own hands. They took their desire, made an irrational decision, and there was brokenness because of it. There was heartache. There was uh, a lack of satisfaction because it's not God's original intent. You see these actions, they're not um, God's will, so they leave us wanting more. They leave us hurting. They leave us broken. And in the same way, that's what lust does to us. It is an irrational act. David and Bathsheba, the same way. David, uh, it says when kings go off to war, David stayed home. He made an irrational act. He was a king who would lead those armies into battle. I'm sure Tolkien got some of his inspiration from King David. But David decided, ah, not today. And in that idleness, he chooses to make a lustful, uh, bad decision, eroding uh, at the time, his heart, he had to reaccept, he had to repent, to reconnect to God. But there were consequences. Pride breaks down, or I'm sorry, lust breaks down the world that God is trying to keep us in. He's trying to keep us in relationship, and lust, this tactic of the enemy, is simply to disrupt or to break or to alter your connection to your source, and that is God. So we, know, we start to get a sense of what this enemy is doing and how the tactic works. There's this theologically rich word, it's called concupiscence. And concupiscence is this rich word that helps us understand what's happening when we react in, in a lustful way. It's an intense form of human desire. The movement of the appetite of the senses contrary to the function of human reason. This is a, like a philosophical, if we were to just look at the philosophy of man, why do people do lustful things? It's, it doesn't make sense, but it seems to satisfy the appetite, but we also know it's momentary. In a biblical sense, we see that this action is just a con, a, an opposition to God's moral order. God actually has a structure, and it's, so, it's reasonable, it's perfect, it's holy, and it is built for us to be in relationship with Him. And by His grace, He continues to give us chance after chance after chance to keep that connection. But we make these decisions that harm that connection, and He just says, just bring your heart back to me and I'll make it all right. Just bring your heart back to me, and I'll restore. Bring your heart back to me, and I will make it right again. This desire is what takes us into sin. This is what the Apostle Paul was referring to specifically in the book of Romans when he talks about the flesh. And it's going against God's reasonable order for humanity and towards our own desires which lead us away from God. So here's, let me boil this down a little bit further so we know this enemy. Lust's main job is to get you away from God, away from the call of God on your life. Let's look at Samson. Samson was established as a judge in Israel. He was meant to protect and to align Israel in, uh, in opposition of the nations around him so that they would uh, follow God only, not these pagan gods, not any of these other um, Uh, false religions around them. 
Samson's job was specific, and he was given supernatural strength and an anointing from God. You all have a supernatural call from God on your life for something specific. And you know what the enemy would love to do? Is take you from this course and just kind of move you just off base. What vice would that be? The one that seems to sneak in through the dark, unspoken, unhidden, or the unspoken and hidden places, the ones we don't talk about much, the ones we don't really like to talk about with our spouse, with our friends, is this area of the desire of our heart missing God's mark. Man, if I could just get that. Man, if I just had a little taste of this thing, man, that would feel so good. That would fulfill me. It's like I go back to this analogy of a child, but it's like they want to eat cookies for dinner, and then 30 minutes later they're starving. Why? Because it's not nutritious. It's not what their body needs. In the same way, your soul is built with a void that is unfillable until God steps in. But this lust of our flesh says, if I just get this in my life, I will be made whole. I will feel like a man. If I watch that, participate in this, dabble into this, I will feel right. I will feel whole. But we know it always leaves us hanging. Every effort of the enemy is to take your desire that was meant to be towards God and point it somewhere else. Can I tell you this? Intimacy is a beautiful thing that God created. He actually blesses it. And back in Genesis, he says, be fruitful and multiply. It is a, uh, a commissioning from God. It is a blessed thing when done correctly. Uh, finances are a blessing from God when, a point, when pointed in the right direction. But what the enemy wants to do is take what, he, what God meant for good, and he wants to turn it into adultery, into pornography. He wants to take something that was meant to be a righteous and, uh, and, and pure thing and make us look at it in a way that is filthy. Something that happens now then is that in this effort to run away is that we demonize sexuality. And the thing is, is that sex is supposed to be a beautiful thing that God intended. But what the enemy would do is say, listen, I'm going to make it filthy. I'm going to make it this disgusting thing. Through the lens of God, it's good, but through the lens of the enemy, it's perverted and takes a wrong turn. We see it happening because it's, uh, in, in our culture today, they want to normalize sexuality in a way that's wrong. They want to use pornography as this victimless crime that just helps take care of people. And it just couldn't be further from the truth. It is one of the leading causes for slavery and sex trafficking in our world today. It's one of the most um, profitable industries in the world because we know that humanity it will always be motivated towards sex. But God says, listen, having the desire is not bad, but it needs to be pointed at the right thing. The Bible tells us that you, a man would leave his family and become one with his wife. God blessed this unity and said, this is where it's intended to go. And in that, God said, through this confines of marriage, you are supposed to have a healthy connection to God. That's the beautiful balance that marriage brings us. But what would the enemy do? Pivot it into something corrupt. So what is lust? Lust is a twisting or a perversion of desire. 
for whatever your heart may desire. If not surrender to God first, the enemy is going to take the things you want most and lead it away from connection to God. Do you want to be loved? Do you want to be powerful? Do you want to be rich? Do you want to fill in the blank thing? Is it surrender to God or not? And you'll know quickly as you step into those things which direction it's going. Desire stems from a longing in our heart and it triggers thoughts in our mind. Lust is attempting to satisfy a temporal need rather than what is true and is whole and is eternal. One of my favorite lines Pastor Chris used to give us when I was in youth group is that it's trading the immediate for the ultimate. Are you willing, the enemy would say, are you willing to compromise your character, compromise your purity for momentary satisfaction, or would you be willing to uh, dismiss that desire of the flesh and say yes to the call of God, disciplining your mind and heart, surrendering it to God? When we do that, the eternal sets in, and it is so much more satisfying to your soul than anything that the world could ever give you. It's something we have to understand because these giants are not just here to scare you. They are here to distract you. They're here to pull you away from what God has in store for you. I look at this church and I think about, I pray for this church all the time. And it's not just so that we can have a fun time on Sunday mornings, but it is to rally the saints into action against the work of the enemy and into the call of God on our life. What would these giants have us do? toil in the filth of the world. And listen, I'm 29 years old, but I've lived long enough to see how the world has continued to shift and shift and normalize these giants. It's okay to pursue all of the greed that you could ever have in the world. It's okay to satisfy your fleshly, uh, lustful desire because you're a human. You're, you're, just a, you're just a man, and man have needs. Like, they, they're just going to normalize this rather than submitting it to the discipline that God has for you. And it's not discipline for the uh, negative, it's discipline for the wholeness. So if we can, as a church, rally back to God's intention, we operate from the intimacy with God that the garden was intending us to have. Our goal is to walk in that same heart. So now that we're aware of what this enemy wants to do, distract us and take us away from a connection to God, let's look at some practical things that we can put into place today to ward off the enemy. I would encourage you to take some notes on these things because I want to go a little bit deeper than just some of the ones that might come to mind at first. First, number one is environment protect your environment. I've gotten to know some amazing parents through my time in youth ministry, and I'm so impressed by their intentionality for their homes. Guard your home, for it's your kingdom. Mom, dad, you are the king and queen of your castle, and you get to decide who comes in and out of the gate. That's through the front, literal front door or the internet's front door. You get to decide. Guard your environment, and on top of that, guard where you go. You have a choice, and it's okay to say no. Proverbs 18 one says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. 
Part of your environment should include good accountability, good friends. Like I mentioned at the beginning, your church family. If you surround yourself with Christians in your life, you are uh, like-minded and you are going in the same direction, you will find that your environment uh, is nurturing to your walk of faith rather than destructive. So I'd encourage you to root yourself in a healthy environment with accountability and then guard your home like it's your own castle. Number two is to protect your thought life. Like I mentioned with Eve, she let the lens of her eyes dictate the next thought and what that thought would be. In the same way, it is perfectly acceptable to not be on trend with every Netflix show. I give you permission to relinquish the need to know about every Netflix show or whatever show. It's not necessary. Guard your heart. Because if it's not an affront, uh, it doesn't have to be uh, the worst thing ever on your screen. It can just be the little erosions, the little chisel taking away a little bit of your um, sensitivities to the work of the enemy. Guard your thought life. 2 Corinthians 2, it tells us that we are in a battle for our souls. Satan's plan is as evil as God is perfect. And so what he would rather do is take your intentionality of your thought life away from thinking on God's things and on the world's things. So it's your choice to get you um, thinking about him. This, is, this blew my mind as I was studying this. The work of God requires intentionality and action. You will not stumble into a call of God in your life. There is it, uh, intentionality and action. The work of the enemy requires inaction and apathy. Think about that. All you have to do is sit, and you will just, you will find yourself drifting into the way the enemy would rather have your mind. It's this idle mind syndrome, this bored mind. Consider guarding your thought life with intention and action towards God. Number three, prayer. Can I just petition you with this thought? You can't pray right and live wrong. It's a pretty powerful thing, prayer. If you're praying right, that means you are inviting the presence of God into your life at that moment. When Jesus tells us to pray, teaches us to pray, he says, on earth as it is in heaven, he is inviting the presence of God into his situation. It should not just be a babbling couple of sentences right before a meal. It should have intention of presence. And in the presence of God, darkness cannot stand. When you find yourself tempted, when you find yourself in a compromising situation, when you find your heart and mind wandering, the best thing you could do is pray and pray with others. Get prayer going in your life. The next one, obedience. I'm big on not being busy, but what I would encourage you with is to be busy with faith-building things. Do your jobs well and on to God. If you're a parent, parent well. If you're serving at church, serve well. If you're an employee or an employer, do that as on to God. And then when you're not there and you're not working in the yard, consider what you could do with that idle time that could maybe edify your faith. Read a book, read the word, watch a sermon on YouTube versus the Netflix show. Consider a faith-building action than just a mindless action. And then the last one, learn to live in modesty to protect your heart. Here's what I mean by this. 
In 1 Samuel, you see the prophet Samuel, he's deliberating over this, uh, these kings, and you have King Saul and uh, the future king, King David. King Saul has all of the look of a king. He's tall, he's strong, he looks like a warrior, but his heart is far from God. Then you have David, who is the exact opposite. He's small, he's frail, he's fair-skinned, he's not this um, kingly-looking man. But his heart was pointed towards God. And Samuel, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gets this powerful statement. He says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. What the enemy would love to do in terms of lust would be to get your heart longing for affirmation, attention from people. He would want you getting the praises of man for your things. And he would rather get your heart uh, focused on fulfillment from anything but God. Modesty points us back to, a, uh, to approval from God. Consider modesty in your action and in your life. The question to that would be, what is fueling your heart? Uh, I'm going to invite the worship team to the stage at this time. And with these practical tools in our tool belt, we're ready to go to battle now. We know what our enemy is and we know what his tactics are. He wants to take our hearts and move it away from God. We know that we have these practical things we can do to wage war against the actions of the enemy. Not just in the day-to-day, but for our family. Setting up a culture for your home. But now we need to know that we have victory. That maybe you walked in and you feel stuck in the mud. And it feels like quicksand and you are sinking. And you feel like you had one breath left in your lungs to get out of it. Get out of it. Can I encourage you this morning that when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't just save your soul from separation from God, but he broke the curse of sin. And that with a repentant heart, we are made right and brought back into connection with him. So this morning, whether you feel like you just got mud on the bottom of your boots or it is up to your chin and you got one breath left in this battle against the war of lust, Can I tell you that there is victory to be had? 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. But this next line, but God is faithful. Can we say that together? God is faithful. There is no doubt about his faithfulness. And if you feel stuck in the mud, his faithfulness, this current and everlasting faithfulness is a hand reaching to you, ready to draw you out of the mud and into victory and into a life of purity. But will you reach out? Will you take that step of faith and say, God, I need it? Because often we can get comfortable living in that. But God, I need you now. That's his faithfulness. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out that you may endure. And then this is my favorite line, uh, my favorite, one of my favorite scriptures. Matthew 5, 8. This is where it all comes together. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That should be the desire of our heart. That we would see God. And the beauty is, is that God made a way for that to happen. Not by your works, not by your religious action, but by your surrendered heart to God. This morning, I want to challenge you. Where is your heart this morning? 
Would you be willing to repent from what has, whatever attacks the giant has put on your life up to this point? There is no judgment in this house. Giants have tried taking swings at all of us. But today can be your day of victory. We're going to be singing a song here in just a moment that uses this, these phrases of, I'm calling on the God of, and just scripture after scripture of victory, of God proving how strong he is. I want to encourage you today that as you sing this song, that it is not just a song, but it is a statement of faith saying, I'm calling on that God for my victory. I'm calling on that God for my son's victory. I'm calling on that God for my daughter's victory, for my grandchildren's victory, for this youth's uh, victory, for this world's victory. Will you call on God today as an act of faith for your own soul? Can I tell you today, you don't have to walk out of these doors drowning. You don't have to walk out of these doors mired in the mud of sin. But today, with a repentant heart, God can make you white as snow. The Word says that He separates your sin as far as the east is from the west. And when that happens, He does not even remember that sin. Today is your day of victory. Would you all stand with me this morning? Though these vices look like giants, they are but frail, broken, defeated enemies before an almighty God. So this morning, let's pray from victory and let's worship him. Father, we thank you that today is a day of victory, that the giant of lust must bow its knee at the name of Jesus. We call on you, God. That as we step into the battle today, swords drawn, ready to battle, God, that we know it is not by our own strength, but by the strength you have given us. Your strength is made perfect in our weakness, God. So today as we worship, God, would we stand in a place of victory? I pray right now by the blood of Jesus and by the work of the Holy Spirit, darkness that has plagued the minds of my friends here this morning, it has to go right now in the name of Jesus. I pray that the the, the chains of lust would go right now in the name of Jesus. That freedom from the bondage of immorality would go right now in the name of Jesus. That as we worship today, it is a place of free and free indeed. God, we love you and we thank you that your word promises that you are faithful and we will hold you to that and you never fail us. So we worship you today in Jesus' name. Amen.